Hey folks, I wanted to apologize for the time in between my last chapter and this one. I recently moved back to Florida for college and have needed some time to get settled back in. I've also been having to do a lot of introspection before I release this chapter. I got engaged in August, we're looking to get married next year, and this particular topic is incredibly important, so I've had to flesh out my thoughts more and more, and I know that these will continue to be fleshed out as time goes on. So thank you for being patient, and I hope this episode edifies, encourages, and helps you grow. Chapter 7 The King Protects and Loves His Queen There were two ways that the last Tsar of Russia failed. He failed his country and his family. Now. Nicholas failed his country by failing to regard the needs of the people, which led to the Bolshevik Revolution, which culminated in the brutal murder of himself and his family. And he failed to recognize the poisonous effects that the holy man Gregory Rasputin had on his family. Nicholas sought to establish himself as a great emperor through putting himself as a figurehead in the military during World War I. This created a lack of unification within the government as he was no longer present on the throne. Now, this created a sort of power vacuum which was immediately filled by his wife, the queen. Now, Alexandra had a much stronger will in terms of how she governed, even commenting on how she viewed her husband as having a weak will. However, she still sought counsel from one whom she trusted, with not only her decisions, but the life of her son, Gregory Rasputin is a name that some may recognize, but know little of the actual extent of his depravity. He claimed to be a man of God while secretly having a form of sexual cult which looked up to him. Now, his position as man of God was his means of worming his way into the good graces of the royal family. Alexei, the heir to the throne of the empire, was born to Nicholas and Alexandra with hemophilia, the same disease which killed our dear Alexandra's uncle. When Rasputin offered to cure Alexei of his disease, and with Nicholas away at war, he was quickly found in the good graces of Alexandra's heart. She was a mother who wanted a healthy son and to continue in her faith in God. Now Rasputin used his position to eliminate and remove those in power who opposed him, which further weakened the leadership within the empire, which afforded the Bolsheviks to gain an even stronger foothold. This led the entire royal family to eventually get massacred by the people. Now enough with the history lesson. What might we learn from all this? If we recall from the story of Odysseus, once more in relation to the story I've told you now, what might we find in similarity? First, we notice that these two men were not where they ought to be for their family, with the distinction between Nicholas and Odysseus being that Nicholas was attempting to be something he should not have been. Nicholas believed that he needed to bolster the strength of the empire by presenting himself as a military leader for his country. Now, his country did not need him to be a figurehead for the military. His country needed him to take an honest look at the living conditions of the people and figure out how to aid them in their poverty. Furthermore, his family needed him to provide guidance in faith and practice. While most reports suggest that he and Alexandra had a loving marriage, his absence left a space for Rasputin to provide his guidance and deception. 
Nicholas did not protect his wife from the influences of Rasputin because he was too busy doing what he thought he needed to do instead of being what he needed to be. Too often do men do this for their families, entrusting the spiritual growth and emotional health of their families to extracurriculars. When a man departs his family by placing his attention elsewhere, he creates a vacuum which will be filled by something. When a man refuses to be as he ought to be, a godly leader, he abandons his post and those under his charge are free to be attacked by external forces. And a man may abandon his post in many ways. For the purpose of practicality, I only explore two areas of deficiency which may cause unrest in a kingdom. Deficiency of the ruler and deficiency of those who are ruled. Now even a good king can have a rubbish citizen, and good citizens can have a rubbish king. Recall that humans are imperfect, and there's no getting around that unfortunate fact. Even a good captain cannot save a sinking ship, and no amount of solidity can keep a foolish captain from running against the rocks. However, if a captain is able to maintain his patience and remain tempered, perhaps he can guide his ship and his crew to a harbor before the ship is totally sunk. Since this work is primarily directed toward those who are called to act in a kingly manner, I will direct my focus toward those who are afflicted by the first deficiency. There are two primary forms of deficiency which may afflict a king, and these will be explored in the next two sections. I tell you these so you may keep a watchful eye upon yourself. You are called to lead in love and wisdom. You are called to lead your people well. Keep a careful eye upon yourself and do not allow yourself to slip into these traps. A man is called to love his wife as Christ loved the church, and so we're given a standard for how we are to approach our wives. Christ gave himself up for her, but he also continues to lead her through his word and his spirit. Carry on walking in self-sacrifice for your queen. Recognize her beauty and baptize her in the word of God every day. Encourage her. Make certain she never goes a day feeling unloved or, or without leadership. She is your first ministry, and as such, treat her with the level of regard that Christ has shown his bride. Now, one must recognize that in order to pay correct regard to one's wife, we must see the dynamic that Paul describes between Christ and the church, which correlates the relationship of husband and wife to that of head and body. Answer me this. What good is the head if it pays no regard for the well-being of the body? How is the head to maintain the well-being of the body if it does not listen to what the body is saying? Now, God is perfect in understanding, love, and kindness. He is omniscient and all-powerful, so he is ever aware of the health of his bride. He is able to perfectly tend to her needs. Humans are not so powerfully endowed. They are limited to their intuition and sensory perceptions in how they acquire information. In such circumstances, men often forget to actually listen to their wives as they become inflated by their pride, thinking that their judgment is perfect in all things. Yet the true king must pay heed to what his bride says, and he must pay her the same regard as he would his own body. Otherwise, such a man becomes a tyrant and is no king at all. Listen to your body. As men, we have the strongest inclination to achieve things. Our focus and goal become centered on getting the task done. We run marathons and ultra marathons where the goal is to push beyond our limits. 
We were the first to run a sub four minute mile. We were the first to climb Everest. We were the first to fly. And there's a biological reason for this. Testosterone encourages risk-taking and novelty-seeking. We get a dopamine rush to accomplish things, and we know that when our bodies are screaming at us that we are completely spent, then we are only halfway there. Even the process of building muscle requires of us to destroy a part of our body so that it may be built up stronger and with more endurance. In short, our bodies are able to be ignored because the reward of success is greater than the risk of damage. Yet, this is not the way Christ treats his own body, is it? He is the one who strengthens her and listens to her. He tends to her and heals her wounds. He is not the one who damages his body, he is the one who mends it. Too often can we treat our wives as we do our own bodies. We hear them cry out and tell us that they have reached their limits of capability. We hear them suggest ideas and dismiss them because we think we know better. How would we fare if we truly treated our bodies like this? Our bodies tell us that we have been out in the sun for too long. We either suffer from heat exhaustion or sunburn, so we walk away in pain. Our bodies tell us that the food is too hot, and we walk away with a burned tongue. Our bodies communicate to us its needs, but the day we simply neglect all of these messages is the day we truly destroy ourselves. We can tune out the signals, but how long will it be before we finally collapse? I say this as one who's paid little regard both to my own body and the warnings of my wife. Just as how we may burn out and our bodies simply stop functioning for a time, we cannot be surprised if distance crops up between ourselves and our spouses if we chronically ignore their words. For that distance is only the ratification of damage, which we have inflicted upon ourselves. Yet we mustn't leave it there. It is an incomplete notion to simply allow the body to rest but we must also work to nourish it and build it back up. We are to deal with it tenderly and not seek to place too much weight upon it while it is still healing. This is the habit that all men must cultivate towards their wives. They must listen to their body, for without any sort of listening, you'll only be hurting yourself, your family, and your mission. On the disservice of gratitude. In his work, The Enchiridion, Epictetus approaches the notion of beauty and eloquence with a form of reverence. He states that God has endowed man with a sense of admiration for beauty. Not only is man endowed with the ability to recognize beauty, but he's also granted the ability to create beauty. This ability is not merely a capability, but also a form of drive. Man is driven to create beauty, and in many cases, the only standard they possess for their admiration and administration of beauty is their own internal ideal of beauty. The issue with such an approach to beauty lies in the seat of where beauty truly comes from and how it is judged. First, we must recognize that true beauty is derived from God as he is the origin of all things good. Secondarily, we are endowed by God with faculties which allow us to recognize and appreciate such beauty. Beauty being the aesthetic appreciation for that which is good or awe-inspiring. Now when we perceive beauty in something, we understand it to have an inherent value. And when something is truly beautiful, we ought to recognize that any value which we may perceive in it is not assigned by our faculties, but purely recognized. We do not give beauty to something when we see beauty in it. 
We see beauty because there is beauty present in it. In the same way, we do not grant wetness to water because we feel it, nor do we grant greenness to grass because we experience it through our eyes. We are endowed with faculties which recognize these qualities, but our recognition does not confirm these qualities on an objective level, but only a subjective manner. Now each of our faculties is granted to us for a purpose. The body and mind are designed to be proactive and reactive to that which surrounds them. These faculties are created for a purpose, and if created, then they have a creator. This creator has created with an intent behind the faculties which have been integrated into man. Herein is my point to all this concern with beauty. There is beauty in goodness. There is beauty in those things which we understand as blessings. These things which are objectively good and beautiful in our lives are our families, our marriages, our lives, and our ministries, whether in church or out of church. When we practice ingratitude towards those things which are good and beautiful, we not only dishonor them, we also dishonor the one who has endowed them with beauty and has endowed in us the ability to recognize that beauty. We cultivate gratitude and appreciation for beauty, which is entirely rooted in God. First, we recognize who God is. We see his character and his essence. This leads us to meditation on that which he has accomplished. Since we now recall that which is true and real, we must act upon it if it is true. If what God has done is done in love, then we ought to recognize these things as gifts and blessings. Anything which is good and done in love is inherently beautiful. Therefore, your wives, your children, your families, your parents, your friends, your abilities, these things are all gifts to you for the purpose of pointing back to God and recognizing his beauty. And we not only show gratitude to God for the gifts, but to the gifts themselves. We ought to be grateful to those who are in our lives. We do not only show appreciation to artists, but also to their art. Even as an artist may be gone, we still look in awe at their work, but our artist is not gone, so why do we neglect beauty? Perhaps it is because we think that it will detract from our own beauty, as if there is a fixed amount in the universe which shifts from one to another when someone is recognized as beautiful. Perhaps we are just blind to that which we ought to be looking for. Whatever the case, we must look for beauty. We must chase it down like a wild dog, and once we have a conception of it, we must hold on to it and see it in as much as possible. And when we neglect to show gratitude to our wives, our families, our pastors, our loved ones, we not only slight the gift, but also the giver.